Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking, no topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. Data is like gold in today's world. And for James Phillips, the president of business applications at Microsoft, data is the one true north he will follow until the end. At Microsoft, James leads a global team of thousands of developers who are using data to build all of Microsoft's business operations and then operate the infrastructure underneath them. And the applications that the Microsoft team has built have helped some of the largest companies in the world put the pedal to the metal when it comes to digital transformation. On this episode of Future of Tech, James details how the Microsoft Dynamics 365 family of products was built to operate together and what kind of agility and options the Power Platform gives app developers to turn their business applications into key components of the company. James also defines what a modern application is to a business today, and he explains why data is the foundation upon which all business decisions and applications should be built. Enjoy. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs's R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. So officially, let me welcome you to a new episode of Future of Tech. And today I'm with uh, James Phillips and we're going to have, obviously, president and busiest uh, application at Microsoft. And we're going to speak about uh, various topics. Um, But let's start from uh, a place that I always like to start, which is uh, how did it all start for you? Because I've read that you've already initiated your first company at the age of 17. So... Yeah, I'm, I'm one of those very fortunate people. I, I count myself as very, very fortunate that I kind of discovered computers very, very early in my life and developed a passion for them. You know, I was, if I'm being super transparent, I was, um, I was not a very athletic child and there wasn't a, a whole bunch I was good at, to be honest with you. Um, and, you know, I discovered computers, taught myself how to program and both really enjoyed it and got good at it. And so it was something that, uh, you know, that, that both brought me a lot of joy and a lot of, um, you know, a lot of self-worth, frankly. And so that, uh, that passion that was sparked very early in my life, uh, has become a very long career for me. And I feel very fortunate that, uh, you know, that I was able both to discover it and to make a living doing it. It's been, it's been an amazing journey. What was it back then? Fortran, Pascal? I got started with basic. Basic. Oh, my first, first computer I programmed on was a 
Texas Instruments TI-994A. This was probably in 1979 or 1980 or so. Okay. And, uh, and it was all business basic at the time. And so I've been, uh, you know, I've been at it ever since. I, I, I moved from actually doing programming work to more of the business side of our business after about 10 or 15 years. But my passion from the start was making software. And I've really, really been, again, very blessed and fortunate to be able to make a living on it. Yeah, yeah. So you, you, you've initiated your first company at the age of 17. How do you do that? So it's what? It's, uh, what drove you? Or, or It was accidental, as most things in life, you know, are happenstance in some ways, a set of circumstances that presented themselves. I, at the time, I was actually working in a computer store, selling computers, apples at the time. Yeah. And we also had the IBM PC had just come out. And so we were, uh, we had this computer store where we had a bunch of different computers and there was a guy that was coming into the store and he was using all of our computers to test the software that he was working on. He wanted to be able to test it across a bunch of different machines and make sure that it worked. And I started talking to the guy and told him that, Hey, I know how to write software. And, and we sort of hit it off. And it, it turns out that this thing that he was working on, you know, became what was Fastback and, and we started a company around it. So I kind of joined forces with this gentleman named Roger. And it was just accidental, you know, one of those things in life that presented itself to, to me and I grabbed onto it and it was a heck of a ride. Yeah, so since then you were walking in uh, computer stores uh, looking for uh, partners or you stopped that? I think at this point in time, that's probably not the most fruitful place, but for, for a while there, it probably was the place to go find a founder. Yeah, <laughs> so did you also enjoy the working with uh, the early uh, OS2? IBM's OS2? You know, it's interesting. By the, by the time OS2 was sort of around, the short answer is no, I never messed around very much with OS2 at all. Okay. Windows and OS2 in some ways were kind of battling it out in the late 80s, early 90s. And when Windows 3 shipped, yep. that was sort of the groundbreaking moment for Windows when it really started to get mainstream. Yep. And the world kind of very quickly, I think, moved away from OS2 onto Windows right about that inflection point, maybe 19, actually it was 1990 let's call it 90 or 91, yeah. when I think the world really went toward Windows and away from OS2. And I, I, had, I had spent most of my career on the DOS side, you know, Microsoft DOS, yep. and then into Windows. Yep. OS2 was a little bit of an inflection point, but I never got sucked into it, thankfully, because it really didn't go anywhere. And did you work with, you know, probably companies our audience never heard about with Novell and, and NetBIOS and those, those? Oh, of course. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating. It, being inside of Microsoft now, it's, I, I've always been in orbit around Microsoft. So if you think about that first company that I did, where we developed Fastback, it was 100% in response to a gap that existed in the Microsoft ecosystem. You know, when that, about 1984, the IBM PC XT and AT had just shipped. And those were the first two IBM PCs that came from the factory with hard drives. Yeah. And there was a, a five megabyte version that was the XT and a 10 megabyte version that was the AT. If you can imagine that, the biggest hard drive you could get was 10 megabytes. And, uh, but the problem was that the operating system, DOS 2.0, that had just shipped around that time to support those releases, uh, it came with a hard disk backup utility, but it, was a, um, but it was very ineffective. It used BIOS only to do the calls to read and write from the hard drive to the floppy disk. And it took a long time. It literally took hours to back up a 10 megabyte hard drive using the out of the box utility. 
And we were able to build FastFact leveraging the DMA controller on the motherboard of the IBM to take that down to eight minutes, literally hours to eight minutes. And so I was fixing problems that Microsoft had in its ecosystem from the very beginning of my career. So I've been in orbit around Microsoft for a very long time. And I've seen Microsoft deal with, you know, certainly as an insider right now, but even as a sort of an ecosystem participant, I've seen the comings and goings of, you know, the OS2 threat, the netware threat, you know, the Java threat, the open source threat, the internet threat. I mean, all of these discontinuities, these technological potential risk factors or opportunities for Microsoft, I've watched the company decade after decade after decade meet these opportunities, these challenges, and overcome them. To me, in some ways, Microsoft has in its DNA this sort of ability to to meet these challenges and to survive and thrive through them on behalf of our customers. Uh, and so I, I fondly remember Novell Netware and in, in the sort of the early days of Windows 3.11 for work groups, which was yep. another sort of groundbreaking moment, I think, for the company. Yep. It's, uh, yep. it's been fascinating to watch. Okay, before we lose everyone that uh, is listening about these two dinosaurs exchanging, you know, a word that they never heard about. Yeah. <laughs> let's move a bit to the future and then maybe we can also talk about, uh, it, it will be interesting maybe later on to pick your brain about the, the difference between how Microsoft was able to adapt to the new era yeah. versus another company that uh, is, is struggling, which is IBM, but we can discuss it maybe later on. Sure. So your role today is like, uh, you know, I, I looked into your bio and into LinkedIn and Twitter and stuff, and, and I've seen that you are more or less managing almost everything within Microsoft. So can you sort it out for me? What's in your domain of expertise? I've seen uh, Dynamics 365 and this and Power BI and, 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 and oh, so, you know, walk me through it a bit. Sure. Yeah. And just to be super clear, in no way, shape or form am I managing most of Microsoft. I've got a, a piece of, my, of Microsoft that I'm passionate about, and it's really two broad areas. Um, we call it the Business Applications Group. If you think about the Microsoft Cloud, we talk about it as being a layered stack of capabilities. At the, at the core is Azure, uh, and Azure is our planet-scale public cloud infrastructure. It's got data at the core, intelligence capabilities, and then an application platform. Sitting on top of that, on top of Azure, is the power platform. And it provides for um, non-professional developers, non-data scientists, the ability to build applications and to orchestrate workflows and analyze data. But it's layered on top of Azure. On top of the Power Platform, Office 365 and Dynamics 365 exist as our application families. On the Office side, it's all about productivity, communication, creation, collaboration. On the Dynamics side, it's all about your structured business processes across marketing, sales, service, operations, finance, and talent. So that stack is, is sort of how we think about the Microsoft Cloud. So my organization owns the Power Platform, the thing sitting in the middle, in Dynamics 365, one of the application families uh, on the top. Great. So let's maybe go deeper a bit. So the Power Platform is what? Is a low-code platform with AI embedded or is it something more than that? It is that uh, and more. It is. So if you think about the Power Platform, it, it was designed specifically to allow uh, organizations to create modern applications, to uh, really to chip away at the application backlog that we all have. If you go to any large organization, what you'll find typically is that there are thousands of applications that they wish they had, True. 
but they've not been able to build uh, for whatever reason. Typically, it's, you know, uh, it requires professional developers historically, which are scarce resources. The development processes for, you know, sort of uh, bespoke, professionally developed applications are intense, it's costly, it's time consuming, and so we all end up with these backlogs. The Power Platform was designed to allow organizations to work their way through those backlogs, to build the applications they always wanted, know they need, but couldn't afford to do because it was too hard and costly. And so what is a modern application? A modern application, we believe, starts from data, because we're moving into a world where data is coming out of everything, and the signal that that data provides can allow organizations to then, from a data-driven sort of predictive perspective, go act either through an application that someone uses or to automate a business process workflow. And so this, this ability to connect to data, understand your data, and then act through an application or automate through a workflow, which of course creates even more data that feeds back into the beginning, is our view of what a modern application is. And so we built the Power Platform to support precisely this. We have hundreds of connectors in a common data framework that allows organizations to assemble the data using the data platform. Uh, Azure Synapse and Azure Dataflex or, or Dataverse sit at the bottom of that, uh, that stack. And then Power BI allows you to analyze that data. Power Apps allows you to build applications based on that signal and Power Automate to orchestrate business processes and again, flowing all that back to the front. So this Power Platform, which is infused with artificial intelligence capabilities, there's something called AI Builder, which is part of the Power Platform that allows you to build models very easily without being a data scientist through examples, sits on top of Azure, so you never run out of gas. If you're trying to do something in Power Apps that you can't quite express in a low-code, no-code way, you can always use Azure in order to expose an API, for example. Uh, and all of these Power Platform applications can be embedded in Microsoft Teams or in Microsoft Dynamics 365, or they can be used standalone. So it's both a low-code platform, but it's also a low-code platform that's connected to extensibility capabilities in Azure and surfacing through the out-of-the-box business processes to the extent that you want to do that in Office and Dynamics. So I have... Actually, two questions, maybe I'll ask them together because they're kind of uh, complementing each other. On one end, we're seeing a phenomena that companies as Microsoft are creating an ecosystem that indeed allows uh, enterprises to, uh, to migrate and move to the cloud. And you describe now a, a very comprehensive and, and, and deep infrastructure that allows companies to ride on top of the Azure cloud and later on on the power uh, platform and, and so on and so forth. AWS provides the same. Google is providing more or less, and, and without going into the details, conceptually, all of them are trying, and Salesforce lately is trying also to create the same phenomena. So are we heading into five, six giants, each one of them creating its own wall garden solution and a, and a company or an enterprise will need to pick and choose one of them, onboard it, and then it's a lifetime marriage, a Catholic marriage that you can't uh, never change? Or, and this is my, my, my second question, I've spoken to uh, John Rose, the CTO and president of, uh, of Dell, and he told me that uh, in his eyes, we're going into commodization of low code and parts of this ecosystem. And therefore, in three, four, 
maybe five years we'll see this ecosystem opens up and, and companies and enterprise will be able to uh, mix and match and, and pick their own uh, flavor for a specific app. So what's your philosophy? I know it's a big question, but... No, it's a, it's a really good question. And quite frankly, it's a question that we get from all of our customers and all of our partners all the time, you know, as they grapple with this, this question, you know, do I, do I go all in with a cloud provider or do I try to stay cloud neutral and pick and choose? Here's my perspective. As we move forward, the most important sort of resource that all of us will, will be able to harness is data. Uh, everything, everything is producing data. You know, as I walk out this door that's behind me, Abishai, unfortunately, you know, there's a very large cloud provider who's going to know that I'm home uh, because I have a thermostat that senses my presence. Uh, when I drive my car into the office, uh, I drive a Tesla. Tesla knows what route I took, how fast I drove, how hard I braked, what songs I listened to. Every time I update my LinkedIn profile, there's information. Every time we have a, a Zoom meeting, there's a digital record about our interactions. And so everything is increasingly producing data. And that data that's coming, not because someone typed it into an application. You think about last generation, actually, you think about all the prior generations of applications. And I would argue they were sort of UI first experiences. Someone opens a UI, you type stuff in, it stores off to a database and you do something with it. That's being inverted. Now applications are, are morphing into a model where da the data comes first, not because someone typed it into a form, but because there is just an immense amount of data available to harness. Those applications now start from that data point and then make sense of it, predict and allow organizations to go act in a way that's proactive versus the, what was necessarily reactive in the past where you had to wait for someone to call, open up an app, type something in. And so, it's a tectonic shift that's occurring up and down this technology stack. Now, to the point, this data is growing at unbelievable scale, right? So you, you, we're talking exabyte and beyond scale data that's gonna be available to us because everything's connected, everything's sensing, everything's producing data. Yeah, going back to the four mega, mega disk that we've... Oh, yeah, yeah. Ten, the 10 meg hard drive works for about a nanosecond at this point. Exactly, yeah. And so I, I like to say that there's, there's, uh, there's physics to data. And it sort of mimics matter. You know, if you think about data as matter. You know, when data begins to accrete somewhere, to accumulate somewhere, that data becomes the signal from which you can predict the future, deeply understand your customers, understand your business processes. But the more data you have, the more facets, the more points of view that you have for any particular real world entity, the clearer that signal becomes, the more accurate that prediction becomes. And so data, much like matter, tends to create a gravitational attraction to itself. It, it wants to pull more data in. Well, as, as more data comes, the mass begins to increase. And at some point, you know, the mass is such that moving that data around becomes a, a real physics problem. You don't pick up an exabyte of data and move it from one place to another, uh, even at the speed of light uh, in any meaningful time frame. And so where you allow your data to begin to accumulate, knowing that it will have attractive force, knowing that it will build mass and inertia, 
knowing that the data is the value that ultimately will drive your business, you better be very thoughtful about where you allow that data to accrete. And I would argue that you want that, you know, sort of the, the mental model is, I want my data in a place where I, I know I can get the most value from it. Where the platform around that data, where the applications around that data, where the ecosystem around that data are such that I have maximum opportunity to make value from it at minimum cost and maximum agility. And that's our philosophy. Um, you know, we believe that the, the, this accumulation of data, the creation of value from this data, and then the, you know, sort of the unleashing of that value in the form of applications and processes uh, is what it's all about. And we think that we have a unique platform that is, is more, far, far more comprehensive than anyone else uh, in the ecosystem today. And more importantly, perhaps, it's more connected and unified. You know, it's one thing to, for us to have built Azure and the Power Platform and our application families and to organically have constructed this such that it's a consistent um, security governance model so that identity is consistent, so that all the layers know about all the other layers. You don't get that when you go off and buy a bunch of random companies, you know, buying MuleSoft and Tableau and Slack and the 60 other companies that you hope somehow or another come together in some kind of fragmented way to create a platform. I think, uh, I, I believe the industry is recognizing that as a, a you know, a, a massive risk factor for anyone that hopes to actually accumulate data and, and you know, picking on my, my, my favorite competitor, you know, and, and by the way, not on top of a planet scale cloud. And so if, if you wanna, you know, I, I would argue that the, the sort of the Oracle database infrastructure sitting at the bottom of that cloud is about as relevant as the 10 megabyte hard drive is in the world that we're heading into. Uh, if you can't sit in a planet scale, post exabyte uh, sort of configuration from a data and a data processing perspective, you're not set up for the future. And so I'm heartened by what, what I'm seeing happen in the market. I'm seeing organizations now try to follow, try to accumulate these assets, try to have something that sort of adheres to that vision. But I, you know, I have a high degree of confidence that, that we're in a pretty special place uh, at Microsoft and we've worked hard to get there. But do you see it as, as, a, as a decision, as, as I've earlier alluded to, of deciding on an ecosystem? Or let's assume I took, a, I took the Microsoft approach. Is it now an ecosystem of Microsoft or can I add my own flavor can I adjust it? Can I onboard third parties, which I like? Can they enjoy the same richness of, of data wealth? And, and Absolutely. Absolutely. So walk us, walk us through this in greater detail. Yeah. So let me say that everything in life is a trade-off, right? And you're trading off every time you make a decision. If you look at what we have created, and, and, and I would argue, Avishai, that if you look at, you know, sort of historical perspective at the industry, I'm going to argue that as an industry, life is cyclical. Just about everything in life has a cycle. And in our industry, there's been this meta cycle of unified platforms and then a technological disruption where best of breed starts to get some energy and then a desire to move back toward a unified platform because the cost of integration the cost of piecing things together, the cost of having a holistic system that works 
when you've got multiple vendors and multiple partners and multiple suppliers is a cost and it's a trade-off cost. And so I believe if you look at what's happening now via all the acquisitions and the mergers and the attempt to pull it together, there's a recognition, I think, at this point that we're entering this consolidating part of the cycle again, where we're trying to pull it all together. Now, having said that, for all time, including in every one of the consolidation periods in our industry, there's always been a need to integrate with, to support, to bring together other, you know, if I consolidated around just one platform in the past, the next time I acquired a company and they made a different decision, suddenly I'm back in an incredibly heterogeneous place and I need to, to rationalize that. And so we will always have a need to bring together disparate pieces, notwithstanding that if you can, in fact, find what you need from a single platform, you're going to minimize integration costs. Again, back to the trade-off thing. So to walk you through the details there, we've done a whole bunch of work. So first and foremost, at, at Microsoft, we've built hundreds and hundreds of connectors out of the box. So part of Azure and the Power Platform and the ecosystem is the ability out of the box to connect to whatever applications, whether they're cloud-based, they're on-premises, whatever database systems you might have, uh, whatever you have, we've, we've got the ability to connect to it, including a product called host integration services. So if you're using a, uh, you know, an old IBM mainframe, we've got the ability to connect to that as well. And so this, this need to connect is, uh, will be persistent for all time, and we can certainly do that and support that. In addition, at the data layer, we've created something called the common data model that permits uh, us at Microsoft and our partners who are building solutions alongside us and with us to rally around that data, to understand the shape uh, and the semantics of the data that we're accumulating beneath our applications and beneath our platform. And so if you go to AppSource, which is our third-party ecosystem, um, appsource.com, where all of our partners sort of provide their solutions, they work out of the box because they've been built both leveraging the connectivity capabilities and to understand the data at the core. And we think that's important. So life is a cycle, life's a series of trade-offs, and we allow our customers to make those trade-offs uh, and to help them through those, those decisions. Got to. Do you see the adoption of, of the Microsoft overall concepts, power platform, cloud, the same across different industries? Do you see it uh, being adopted the same way, let's say in healthcare, banking, uh, telco, I don't know, and other domains? The answer is yes, actually. You know, so it's, it's fascinating. We, we now have uh, over 500,000 customers, 500,000 organizations using the Power Platform uh, today to build applications. And it spans industries, it spans geographies, it spans uh, company size. It, it really has, in many ways, you know, it, it, we go back to, to sort of the dinosaur talk. You go back in time, and we've always had these platforms o over, the, over the years. You know, I, I did a lot of programming in DBase 2 and DBase 3 and 4 back in the day and Fox Pro and, you know, Visual Basic was a, a big platform for a long time. And the world is hungry for this platform that, that gives those same kinds of low-code, high-productivity application experiences in the cloud. And that's what the Power Platform represents. And much like the old sort of systems that we grew up with, the Power Platform has really captured the imagination of just a huge population 
of users who aren't quite professional developers, but they sure understand their business and they sure understand the business processes that they wish they could automate and build apps around. And those are the ones that are being activated now in a way that um, I think speaks to folks across industry, across geography, across uh, company size. Let me pause for a second and ask you something which is kind of outside of the technical discussion and more into your managerial skills. You are managing a power platform which requires a set of understanding and directions and then a business application uh, which requires something completely different and then maybe an, an AI capabilities which again is something different. How do you uh, manage the different quote-unquote capabilities and skill sets that you need to master in order to build something which makes cohesiveness beside the PowerPoint, but rather as, as a technology as a whole? So, well, the, the, the first answer is that I've got the, the best team in the world. I, I've got a leadership team that works for me that are the experts uh, on the planet in low-code, high-productivity application development, in business applications, in artificial intelligence. I mean, I am very, very fortunate to have at Microsoft, I believe, the world's very best technical talent period, bar none. And through that, that leadership team, who, uh, who I have enormous respect for, you know, I, I get amazing leverage. Uh, I certainly can't be the expert in everything. I can't be the expert in, art, you know, the details of, um, you know, the, the very best uh, cognitive models or, or, you know, sort of the, the leading edge of data science today. But I, but I know great people when I see them and I, I see the impact that they have. And, and I view my job ultimately at this point in my career as sort of twofold. One that you touched on here, which is putting in place uh, with the team a vision and a strategy. What do we think is possible? How do we best serve our customers? What does the future look like? How can we take what we have and envision a future where we're serving our customers and our partners and our community in a way that only we can? that adds value to them. And so crafting that vision, which then needs to be converted into a strategy and an execution plan to make that vision sort of render in reality is part one. Part two is um, once we have that vision, we have that strategy, we have that understanding of how we're gonna go serve our customers and, and, and sort of make the vision real is to organize around that. How do you build the right team? How do you structure correctly? How do you put the right people in the right roles with the right charters and the right clarity to understand how they and their teams will fit into this bigger picture? And I think that, you know, that, that mentality, you know, vision strategy, execution vision, married with organizational design and the development of the right people and the right talent to carry that out, and then the culture, most importantly, to support uh, an organization that pulls on the same end of the rope, where it values learning, where it's all about the customer, you know, laying that cultural foundation. Those three legs of the stool, I think, are really ultimately my job. And, and I would argue any leader's job. I don't care if I've got 200 people working for me, 2,000 or 20,000. The reality is I can only have about 10 to 15 or so people directly reporting to me at any point in time and hope to be a good leader for them and to spend an appropriate amount of time. Uh, and so I've always, regardless of the level that's beneath them, you know, the, the volume of, of resources beneath that next line of, of leadership, it's still the same problem. What's the vision? How do you break it down into chunks 
and uh, you know ensure that people understand their part. And I think if you can get that down, you can scale in some ways infinitely. Yeah. Now, I would also add that I I do feel in some ways like in this business, in the technology business, a passion for the actual technology that sits beneath all of this, because ultimately we have to take that technology and turn it into products, turn it into services, does require a degree of the ability to understand sort of what's going on under the covers at some level. Yeah. And I feel fortunate that I grew up as a technologist. I grew up as a, as a programmer. I grew up as an engineer. And at the point of my career, you know, where I was getting started, things were very low level. You know, that most of my initial development work was at the chip level. It was an assembly language. It was leveraging the core of the machine. And I've, I've worked my way up from a technology perspective from there. And so I've got a good sort of intuitive, internalized sense of what's going on from a technology perspective. And I think that serves me as well, but I could never scale to be the expert. It's, it's all about the team. Yeah, yeah. And about assembly, you know, we can exchange many jokes about programming in assembly, but at the later... Uh, yeah. <laughs> what's your thoughts about uh, RPA, robotic process automation? You know, it's interesting and important technology. that you know, It's been around a long time, so it's not a new area. I think what's changing is... You know, part of what, what RPA requires is the ability to leverage things like computer vision models. So let's step back just quickly and I'll frame how I think about automation all up. So in a perfect world, systems expose themselves via APIs and programmatically to permit automation. You know, if I install a modern application or a modern database system, there are programmatic ways to go interact with those systems and to get value out of those systems and so ultimately, I think the world moves into a place where programmatic access is ubiquitous more or less, and that's the fabric around which we automate. The reality is, though, that, you know, back to the point that, you know, we live in a heterogeneous world where people are still, in fact, using system, you know, 36 or AS400s or VAXs um, and, and all of the, you know, that's come in between where that programmatic access, in fact, did not exist or wasn't easy. And all you have is a UI. All you have is the system that some user sits in front of and types into. Robotic process automation is ultimately about taking that class of system that was difficult to interact with programmatically and making it such that you can interact with it programmatically. That's, that's what RPA is all about. And, and it's done through a variety of techniques. But the leading edge, is through computer vision models, where you can actually train a model to understand what's happening on the screen by looking at it, by understanding the pixels, and then to act as a result of that understanding. It's, it's for all practical purposes, taking systems that don't have programmatic interfaces and making them automatable by leveraging the advances that we've had in computer vision models and machine learning to automate those systems via their UI. And so we believe at Microsoft, and we have a product, in fact, in, in my organization called Power Automate, that is the combination of these two worlds, where we take our hundreds of connectors that we have as part of our platform, and we marry that with our UI automation capabilities to create a comprehensive automation platform that connects both worlds. 
And so we think it's an incredibly important area. We've done a lot of work in that area, both organically and, and we've done some acquisitions. Uh, and it's an area of growth for, um, for our customers and, and where we're investing uh, heavily at this point. Interesting. What technology are you most excited about if you're looking ahead in the coming years? So I've, I've been in love with and excited about uh, mixed reality and HoloLens uh, for years now. I think it's one of the most exciting things that we're doing at the company. Uh, I really do believe that this modality of human-computer interface is just a game-changing opportunity in so many ways. I mean, one, one of the, just a personal thing about me, I'm horrible with names, horrible. And it's a, it creates a bit of an anxiety for me, frankly. You know, I, I'll forget a name and I, you know, it's, I don't like it. Uh, if I had a HoloLens on that was capable of recognizing faces and just like putting a little name right above the face when I'm done, that would relieve so much anxiety for me just as a human being relationally. It would be a game changer in my life. And that's just one little example of the ability of this class of technology to mix reality. I had a, a phone call with one of our customers about a year ago that, that really sort of cemented for me the, the opportunity here. So this customer, it's an aerospace company. They build airplanes. And here's their vision for how they want HoloLens to evolve and how they want, our, frankly, our business applications to evolve. And so this, uh, this organization wants to have all of their workers, you know, set up with a HoloLens device while, while they're working. So you're working on an aircraft wing. The HoloLens, which is not just an output device, it doesn't just put holograms in the real world, it's also laden with sensors. It can see what's in front of you. It's got depth sensing cameras. Uh, it's got the ability to take in the world, bring that up to the cloud, join it with other sources of data, draw conclusions, make predictions, and then bring that back down and put that in front of you. That is just incredibly powerful. You know, I go to pick up a piece of, equipment to put into that wing uh, and it's watching me do it and ensuring that I'm getting the process right and helps me guide me to the right way to assemble that piece. I mean, it's, it's truly astounding how much a difference this ability to take in the world, process the world, join the world with other sources of data, and then bring that back down and mark that up, if you will, for a human being, game changer. That's that I'm super excited about. It's an area where we're investing heavily in the business applications domain. Yeah, yeah. My last question goes into, okay, I'm a CIO or a CEO. I've listened to this podcast. Everything is very interesting. And I'm asking myself because I am entering into a journey of modernizing my applications, moving to the cloud, injecting AI in some shape and form. What should be the questions that I need to ask my vendors before I take a decision which ecosystem or which platform should I embrace? I think at the, at the very core, there are, there are two questions. You know, we've talked a lot about data. We've talked about the importance of data. We've talked about the volume, velocity, and the variety of data as it explodes in the world in front of us. I think deeply understanding the data capabilities, the data collection, data storage, data processing, data analysis. I don't care if you're talking about an application decision or a platform decision or a business intelligence decision. At the end of the day, they're all data decisions in the world that we're moving into. And so deep getting very comfortable that the partner that you're having that conversation with 
has your data estate best interests in mind and the capabilities to provide for the most value creation for your data is, is one. I think the second uh, really is all about trust. It's about trust and privacy and sort of way beyond just regulatory compliance, although that's a big deal too. You know, what is this partner that you're about to do business with going to do with your data? You know, what are their interests? What are they trying to accomplish? Where are they going to go try and monetize the signal that ultimately should belong to you? I think that whole deeply understanding the sort of both the ethical considerations and the business considerations, because they're inextricably linked um, in the world that we're operating in now, I think is the other thing that organizations are going to need to get really comfortable with. You know, we believe very strongly that our customers own their data. And that what, that what what they want to do with that data or what's done with that data is their decision. Uh, we're not here to mine our customers' data and to go create value from that. We're here to help our customers operate their businesses effectively. And, you know, that, that, that's sort of our point of view. But, but we believe, and, and based on customer conversations, that it is an increasingly important concern in an area where our customers are, are asking a lot of tough questions. And so I put the spotlight there as well. Perfect. Now, though I don't have my VR glasses on, I still remember that uh, I'm speaking to James Phillips. It was a great pleasure to have you. Thank you, Abishai. Um, I enjoyed our talk. Many questions left open. Hopefully, we'll have the time to do it uh, face-to-face soon. I look forward to it. And I'll be in Israel in the not-too-distant future, so I look forward to seeing you. Perfect. Take care. Thank you, Abishai. Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin, directly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.